The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And welcome back. You are tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast, both on Kimberly Martin's website, KimberlyMartin.com, and KUCI's website. I'm your host, Marie Stone. So as you know, we are dedicated to profiling men and women of Orange County who are doing amazing things. This is a show I've wanted to do for a very long time, both for my own benefit and for the benefit of my listeners. We are talking about women's health, uh, aging, menopause, hormone replacement therapies, a whole host of issues surrounding kind of the murky and confusing questions women often have about their health. We are here to dispel myths. We are here to dispel um, confusions and fears and all of those things today. The first myth I want to dispel is this isn't a show just for women. If you are married to a woman, if your mother is a woman, if you're engaged in a partnership with a woman, um, this is a topic that is going to affect you. And I am fortunate to have the vast knowledge, resources, and experience of Dr. Stephanie McClellan with me today. Dr. McClellan was educated at USC. She practices gynecology at OCGYN in Newport Beach. She's affiliated with Hogue Memorial Presbyterian Hospital in Newport Beach. She has become widely known for her outpatient hysterectomy procedure, which is done laparoscopically, almost no pain, little blood loss, and a very fast recovery. Additionally, Dr. McClellan has served as chairman of the OBGYN department and as consultant to the hospital on women's health for over a decade. She's helped to coordinate the founding and building of the renowned Women's Health Pavilion at Hogue. She's raised an unprecedented $70 million for that project, and her vision shaped the highly regarded Women's Health Center. In addition, in 2011, she and Dr. Beth Hamilton co-authored the book, The Ultimate Stress Relief Plan for Women, um, which is just a fabulous resource. If you haven't picked that up, I recommend that. She's now devoting much of her time and thinking to menopause, hormone replacement therapy, how women can age vibrantly and healthy, a whole host of issues related to that. She's in studio with me today to talk about all these myths and fears and misconceptions. This is such an important topic. What a pleasure, Dr. McClellan. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled. I, like I said, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I just think it's so important. Um, we have talked about women's heart health on the show before, and you know, maybe we can get into a little bit of that today too, but, but really a pleasure. Um, so I had the luxury of, of uh, introducing you, but I wanted you to be able to talk a little bit about your, your passion, kind of how you got interested in women's health. You've sustained this interest for decades um, and kind of, you know, the spark that led you into this and what, what keeps you engaged. I get asked that question a lot, and the answer is so um, silly that it makes me laugh when I think about it. I was either eight or nine years old, and I remember being in the lower level of the elementary school that I went to, and they had shown us a movie on the brain. 
And compared to animation today, it was about the quality that a third grader could do today. But I was mesmerized by this. And the brain was a cartoon figure looking at a big television screen. And the little child walking to school went, oh, there's a flower. There's my friend Jane. There's school bus. There's my teacher. And I was just taken by this. Mm. And when I was walking home from school that day, musing in my own mind, I had a very clear, dominant, interruptive thought that said, when you grow up, you will be a doctor and you'll take care of women. And being um, one of seven children in a large Greek family, and the grandparents were there all the time, the rule at dinner was you could go around the table and everyone had one story of the day. Otherwise, it was chaotic, more chaotic than it was. And when I proudly announced this revelation at dinner, the entire family started laughing. And my father said, do not be ridiculous. Finish your vegetables (laughs) because... I was the most squeamish child. If I saw blood, I would run away. If there was a bird that looked hurt, I would just sob and think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? So I don't think anyone thought, A, I could make it or would make it. But that thought never left me, and it it was a very clear path from a very young age. Now, obviously, I had no idea what that meant, but I was committed to the path. That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> so no no doctors in your family? My father was a dentist. Okay. I actually was the first woman in our family to graduate from a four-year college. So was I. You were? Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Great. And so it, there wasn't a, the kind of perception that because you were a woman, medicine was out of reach at the time? For my father? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, not only medicine, he, he liked that I was bright to a certain level, Mm. but found it more of an encumbrance, and he wanted to make sure that I knew how to cook, set a table, arrange flowers. I liked doing all those things, but I never wavered. In fact, he was so adamant that this was a waste, and he, he was a very comfortably successful man because of investments, not his dental practice, but he actually refused to pay for medical school uh, because he thought it was frivolous in a lot of ways. And I found a way to um, find money through Mm. loans. And that that also is a funny story because you had to submit your parents' financial statements. And, And I understand it. The head of financial aid at the medical school looked at this and said, tell me you're kidding that you're applying for financial aid, and I said, I don't know if you know anything about Greek patriarchs from Sparta. They're not really (laughs) negotiable, and when he says no, he means no. So this woman found me the best loan she could for that year, and it was at 18% interest, I know. But once I'd been off my father's tax returns for a year, then because my husband and I were really poor, starving students, we we got more favorable terms. That's really interesting. I'm I'm just drawing all these parallels between our our upbringing, and I I think that informs how women see themselves and how they view their own health and their own worth, and you know all the things that play into women being afraid and or play into women being a little bit um, unclaiming of the things that go into their own health care and you know all of these issues. So that's 
that's a very interesting background. And then do you feel like through the um, through growing up as a woman, your areas of concern towards women's health kind of um, tracked your own trajectory? Like I know you used to do obstetrics, um, and I know now you only focus on gynecology, and, and now you're at some point in your career you were really interested in stress, and I was wondering if that kind of tracked what you know, what was on your mind at that time, and now you're interested in menopause and hormone replacement therapy. What I loved about um, OBGYN as a student is that, to me, it was the most magical specialty because, first of all, even to this day, the fact that an egg and a sperm fuse together and nine months later a baby is born, I understand it's commonplace, but that doesn't take the miracle out of it, that it works and works so beautifully and perfectly. That always intrigued me, the whole idea of uh, genomic signaling and cell migration. How do you really get a living, breathing, you know, potent person from an egg and a sperm? I don't know if you've ever seen a sperm under the microscope, but they are silly looking. <laughs> and they have one purpose in mind which may be a literal expression of all men's one purpose in mind, but it works. <laughs> so I think you're right. In my younger years, that focus on childbirth and delivery came second nature because that's where I was in my career. Um, when, when I moved to Orange County, I was raised in the San Gabriel Valley, went to USC straight through. So I didn't know anyone in the medical community per se down here had some introductions, um, but it ended up starting um, a practice after one and a half years of kind of affiliating with somebody else in Orange County and then going out on my own. And the growth in the practice was shocking, mm -hmm. mostly to me. I thought I'd have a small practice and um, work three days a week and, you know, be home much more than I was. And the practice just exploded, and I've been asked why over and over. And I think it's two things. One, we were women, and that was a time where there weren't many women. So it was novel. There's no doubt that that was a draw. But interestingly, for many women, it wasn't a draw. They thought going to a woman obstetrician was strange hmm. and would say, oh, gosh, I would never go to a woman obstetrician. Now, that's hard to believe. 25, 30 years later, but this was not an uncommon thought back then. And again, I think because we were such a minority then. But the other reason I think the practice grew is that we had one point of view. If you were our sister, our mother, our best friend, what would we want to have done for you? And that was the very simple but pervasive point of view. Now, having explosive growth had its own problems. Um, I wasn't anticipating the young partners that I would bring in. None of us were anticipating it. But by six years out of my residency, I was, quote, the senior partner in what at that time was the largest OBGYN group in the county. And I use mm -hmm. the term senior partner very loosely because in medical school, there is not one course on business, how to even schedule a patient. Now, you think that would be helpful, right? <laughs> right. But, I mean, we had no idea how to schedule a patient, how to, uh, how to do anything. I mean, we just learned as we went. And I was very grateful for the growth. And I realized that we were innovative, not intending to be. 
what we viewed ourselves as being was practical. Mm -hmm. And to that point, we were, if not the first, we were the first we knew of that we brought and consolidated services to one practice. So these busy moms or pregnant moms or working moms, they didn't have to go to one place to have their blood drawn, another to get an ultrasound, another to have fetal heart rate testing. We brought it all together. And I think, again, I don't think it was genius. I think it was practical extension of what we were all juggling as young wives and moms. And then in about 1999, early 2000, Hogue had already identified that one of their centers of excellence would be women's care. And at that point, I was chairman of the OB department and still the senior partner in what was a very, very busy um, group called Doctor's Office for Women. Mm-hmm. And I ended up um, boldly, not realizing it was bold at the time, asking the CEO of the hospital, Michael Stevens, who's just an incredible man, if he could convene both boards mm-hmm. of the hospital, the governing board and the foundation board, so I could just give them you know, a practical opinion of what I thought great women's care in Orange County could look like. And they were supportive of the vision and asked if I would, from a medical point of view, be the spokesperson and help develop the medical programs for what would become the Women's Pavilion. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to be given three amazing women from the community, Ginny Uberoth, Sandy Sewell, Arden Flamson, (coughs) excuse Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. They were the philanthropic co-chairs of the campaign. And I remember our... Our task was to see, could you raise $10 million over five years for the Women's Pavilion? And we had a AAA bond rating at the hospital at that time. We knew the bricks and mortar were going to go up. What I was hoping is by raising that kind of money, we could have really elite programs for women. And I said to them with all sincerity, I had never had any fundraising experience other than the bake sales at my kids' school or the swim team. (laughs) And it seemed like a daunting task, but Ginny and um, Sandy and Arden were forces of nature, and they would think about people who might be interested in this kind of opportunity philanthropically, and I would present the vision, and shockingly, um, mostly to me, we raised over $70 million in under three years. And of course, the amazing generous gift of the grosses of 20 million was a huge part of that. Um, But I'm grateful. And it also confirmed that people do want information. They want access to care, not for the easy, straightforward. That's, That's not hard to find anywhere. What women in particular want and need is answers to this complex path that all women face because of these very specific portals of passage, these hormonally unique stages that, yes, I know men go through puberty, and they go through, quote, uh, the andropause. But the andropause is like a slide down a gentle hill. Mm. For women, menopause, for many, not all, but many, is being pushed off the cliff. 
And then we have pregnancy, its own incredibly unique state. And then we have cyclic hormone productions month after month, getting you ready to potentially be pregnant. And that um, that became very aware to me when I took this job for Ho, consulting for them during this time, thinking about what would a world-class women's health center look like. And I knew we were very close to that in obstetrics. That also fueled my interest in minimally invasive surgery because in 2000, about 80% of all gynecology surgery at Hogue was open, you know, by old-fashioned laparotomy, only 20% laparoscopically. Today, wow, it's probably, I haven't seen the statistics, but I would guess it's about 90% minimally invasive, whether you're using a robot or not using a robot, and a very small percentage open, including... Um, the oncology surgeons, they're, they're very talented at Hogue, and they are able to do very complex surgeries robotically. That's incredible. So in 17 years, it turned it's around. turned around. But, you know, I have wow. to tell you, I really was surprised when, again, I was doing this consulting work for Hogue. The French were so far ahead of us mm-hmm. on minimally invasive surgery, although the technique of laparoscopic hysterectomy was actually developed in the United States, but we kind of lagged in developing it here. And then the general surgeons, once they became convinced of the benefit and enamored of the technique, they do a huge amount laparoscopically too, and they're very, very good at it. So it's amazing how in healthcare there are these cultural shifts mm-hmm. like that. Right. Things are going along, and then boom, something changes. Right. It used to be, and I wonder if this is still true, that hysterectomies were kind of in vogue, that when women got to a certain age and, you know, they weren't going to have any more children, whatever kind of came up, a hysterectomy was, was kind of a quick solution. And I, I don't know if that's still the case or how, how you feel about hysterectomies. I felt as a resident that we were doing too many hysterectomies, and for two reasons. One, Um, we were motivated to do them because we wanted to learn to do them. So Mm -hmm. if we could even have a soft justification, Mm -hmm. we would offer that to a patient as a technique. But I think there was something else. I think that women have only, in, in my opinion, my observation, have only really started to demand, um, authentic explanations for recommended therapies in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think prior to the last 20 years, women would go along with just about anything that they were advised to do with very little questioning. And there were many ways to persuade women based on your language that maybe were not disingenuous, but maybe overstated. And so I ended up in my young career trying to avoid hysterectomies for women. Hmm. Now I've swung a little bit back the other direction in large measure um, because of the reality that the hormone replacement issue for a woman who's had a hysterectomy is so uncomplicated and so simple, and the world literature supports that using non-oral, meaning a transdermal or vaginal application of natural hormones i.e. bioidentical hormones in a thoughtful way appropriately timed in the menopause transition actually promotes 
health and wellness with not only not an increased risk of breast cancer, those women who are able appropriately to use estrogen only have a 50% reduction in the relative risk of developing breast cancer versus women who use no hormone therapy. And just to round out this conversation, if you are using natural estrogen and natural progesterone, what many people call bioidentical, you don't have protection against the development of breast cancer. But if you have a risk increase at all, it's nominal. And there is real data to suggest that using the natural hormones is, in terms of relative risk, about equal to the same risk if you're on placebo. And I think a lot of people don't know that, I think. Yeah, I really want to focus on that because that is one of the big myths. You know, I think women hear hormone replacement therapy and they get scared. They think breast cancer, they, they've heard all the horror stories of 20 years ago. Um, and this is really one of the myths that I wanted to debunk today, if indeed oh, you good. agree it's a myth, <laughs> which it sounds I, like you do. I, I do. Um, th- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you No, 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 no. Um, I like history. I, um, as we were talking about before the show, I love biographies. They encourage me. They inspire me to not be a baby when I think I'm so overwhelmed. But there are moments in history that we all live through that we know we were living through something potent and transformational. Like, you could not have been alive during the Watts riots. I was a child. And to not understand this is something really important. I remember exactly what I was wearing and where I was the day John Kennedy was killed. Um, and many other events, 9-11, they're potent. You recognize them instantly. This is a transformational event. I would argue that the Women's Health Initiative, from a woman's health perspective, was a transformational event that has only now begun to be discussed in the way it should be. It was a dramatic um, gesture, mm-hmm. the way it was handled, the way the data was presented well before it was properly adjudicated. But in an instant, it changed. A, it was a cataclysmic shift in the way women have thought about hormones and breast cancer, stroke risk, And if you ask people, including the medical world, does estrogen cause breast cancer, I think most people would say, yes, of course, everybody knows that. Where in truth, the science shows the opposite. Now, that may not be true for many, many, many years of estrogen therapy. And it's going to take time for women who have chosen to stay on hormones in large enough numbers to get the the data power that we need to say, is there a risk? And does that mean there's a magical age of stopping hormone therapy? But what I can tell you, um, there is real debate and real effort among the academic elite in this country and people who consult for farm at the highest levels, people at the NIH, people advising the government to really take a hard look at the estrogen data. Because if you look at mortality statistics, women in their 50s, meaning between the age of 50 and 59, who, do, who use hormones 
have, let's say it in the positive, women's who, women who have chosen to use hormone therapy, they have a lower death rate from all-cause mortality, all-cause, than women who have chosen not to use hormone therapy. I don't think most people know that. No. I think they feel the opposite. I'm suffering because I believe I need to soldier on with whatever my symptoms are because I'm making a health choice. And nothing could be further from the truth. And we know that women who have hot flashes are at greater risk for Alzheimer's. And really? other Yes. Yeah. It's this inflammatory alarm is a warning that it isn't just a heat sensitivity. I mean, we can all deal with it if it was that simple. Put ice packs on your wrist, do diaphragmatic yoga breathing, you could abort a hot flash. But it's a marker of something more potent going on. And that's why I get frustrated when I hear women say, no, no, I have horrible hot flashes, but I can deal with them because they believe they're making a health decision when in fact they are making a decision that's probably not in their long-term health best interest. For sure they do. I mean, that, you know, there's been sort of a craze of everything organic and as few prescriptions as possible and, you know, trying to do everything the natural way. And if this is the natural way, then then you're right. I'll soldier on. And um, so that, this is all very interesting. I didn't realize that. Can I make one comment on your comment? Please. See, you just, I think, articulated so perfectly what most women think. And this is what I hear in my office every day. Dr. McClellan, I eat well, I exercise, I have a grateful spirit, I do meditation, I'm mindful. Absolutely, everybody should do those things because those things have been shown categorically to improve vitality and health. Where I think the misconception about estrogen comes in is that it's not a drug. Mm -hmm. If estrogen were a drug, how could it be present in many, many life forms on this earth, whether you believe in creation or you believe in evolution. That's not the point here. The point is estrogen is so ubiquitous that even plants have Mm -hmm. estrogen-like substances that are bioavailable to us, or we could not benefit from, quote, phytoestrogens, Mm -hmm. whether it's black cohosh or whatever else you're taking. And also, in pregnancy, you are literally, as a developing embryo, you're in a an estrogen soup almost Mm. and the placenta itself makes very substantial amounts of an estrogen called estriol and the maternal liver in pregnancy only in pregnancy makes a very special estrogen called estetrol Mm. that most people don't even know what it does Mm. but we know that it must be important because it's made in every pregnant woman's liver so there's just so much misunderstanding, and there is a um, movement in the clinical medical world and the bench science world. Uh, they're trying to talk about the unifying principle of estrogen because we now know when, when estrogen gets into the nucleus of a cell, there are at least 3,200 receptor sites in the DNA that est- at least, that number is rising, we know that estrogen has profound effect on the cell membrane. Mm. And you know that has to involve energy transport and other cell-to-cell signaling. Mm. And probably most potently that most people don't know, estrogen, if not the, is at least one of the key um, 
modulators of energy production by the mitochondrial sites in the cell in the cell cytoplasm. So wow. even in men. So if you have estrogen that's too low, your energy production is off. And that's why when menopausal come, women come and they say, I feel so fatigued. I just feel fatigued. We always, of course, look at vitamin D, diabetes, screening, thyroid. Most of the time, those women have extraordinarily low estrogen. We replace that a little bit, and their fatigue goes away. So we're talking about fundamental cell function. And there are some people who think we should rename estrogen. I mean, clearly, it's involved in women's women womanness, you know, the mm-hmm. secondary sexual characteristics, signaling for ovulation, preparation and maintenance of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But at its core, it's involved in many, many things, including energy regulation and production in the cells. So fascinating. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie McClellan. We are talking about women's health, estrogen, hormone replacement therapy. You are tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So I want to stay with that just a minute because you're just giving a whole host of information that I think you may take for granted, but your average woman doesn't know. Um, So if it it sounds like it's the case that there are a, a whole host of types of estrogen And is the delivery mechanism also important here? You were saying um, that you recommend delivering it through a cream. Um, If you are on birth control pills, for example, I assume that's another way you can get it. And do you have to factor that in, you know, if you've been on a lifetime of birth control, um, when you hit menopause, are you you worried that you've been perhaps overexposed to estrogen for all of all those years as well? Or, you know, this is the crazy thing in America. We have no problem putting 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds on birth control pills, which are potent synthetic hormones, ethanol, estradiol. And by the way, I want to say this for your listeners. I'm not anti-birth control pills. They revolutionized women's health. For a woman to be able to control reproduction has been, in my opinion, the single most empowering thing to women. Mm -hmm. So I just want to put that to the side. That said... Ethanyl estradiol is a very potent synthetic hormone, at least 10 times more potent than estradiol, which is the most potent of the naturally produced human female hormones. The progestational agents in the pill (coughs) are not progesterone. Excuse me. They're actually more closely structurally related to um, nortestosterone. But they work as anti-estrogens. They balance the estrogen effect. So we've been lucky over the last 20 years because we keep dropping the dose of the Mm -hmm. estrogen, maintaining the progestin, so we're minimizing side effects. We're maintaining efficacy for contraception. But I do think high-dose pill exposure over time did increase the risk of breast cancer slightly. Interesting. But what I worry about with the pill is something that um, was said to me offhandedly when we were researching the book on stress. I, we came across, Dr. Hamilton and I came across the work of a man in Germany called Dr. Dirk Hellhammer, and he is a psychologist, well-known, Ph.D. psychologist in the stress world. Mm-hmm. And he developed something called the Trier 
social stress test. I want to go to Trier, Germany, see him, meet him, pick his brain, and see how he conducts the Trier social stress test. So I can tell you, seeing how he did it, just watching those people made me stress. So it's a very effective, reproducible way in the stress world to be able to measure stress in a quantifiable way. Only the Germans. Only the Germans. But (laughs) Dr. Hellhammer says to me, you know, in his thick German accent, I do not like having women in my studies who are having natural periods. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, because if you have the same woman exposed to the same stress provocation before or after ovulation, even though her body, the peripheral body, looks the same, meaning heart rate goes up, blood pressure, cortisol surge, all those things, their brains, when you put them in a brain scanner, he said they look like two different people. I said, my gosh, Dr. Hellhammer, this is my life. You know, I care about this. What do you think about this? His answer was pretty much, I don't care about it. I find it annoying because it's complicating my studies. And I'm thinking, my gosh, this is the answer (laughs) to PMS. We should care about this. This is the study. (laughs) This is the study. But what he said next, which was a toss away, has haunted me ever since then. He said, but of course I love women on the pill. I said, well, that makes sense to me because their brain is exposed to a constant stable hormone environment and they don't have the fluctuations. He said, yes, exactly. But you know, on brain scan, the way they respond to stress, looking at what pathways they activate in their brain, are more closely related to a male brain than to the cycling female brain. And I tried to engage him in this, and he he's German and stubborn. He did not want to engage in this. He wanted me to pay more attention to his studies. But that's haunted me because I've thought, wow, I look, there's not one study dealing with this that I could come across in the world literature. So if any of your readers know of it, I'd love to read it. But I started to think to myself, is this only while you're on the pill? Mm -hmm. Is it reversible? Is it permanent? What does that mean? What are the implications? Because if there really are gender differences in the brain, and we know emphatically that there are, are we making brains that are not classically female? And I don't know the answer. And it's something that I talk about, excuse me, with some reluctance because I don't want this to be an excuse to say we should take birth control pills away. But I do think sometimes we're not thoughtful enough in women's care because we're solving a short-term problem and maybe not looking at the downstream effects. What will this mean? And I think that now it's made me more cautious about being casual, about putting young women on the pill because their frontal lobes haven't even fully myelinated and developed until they're in their early 20s. And I honestly have no idea if by giving birth control pills to young, developing female brains are we changing something. So, I, again, I'm not trying to alarm people at all, but I am trying to say let's be thoughtful about how we give advice to women of all ages. Let's make sure that we're following the great commission to all physicians, do no harm first. Right. And to the 
kind of earlier point of how men approach medicine versus how women approach medicine. You know, I, I have been in, in one practice of yours or another for the past 20 years, and, and it's interesting to me. And that we're grateful said, for that. Yeah, but it's interesting to me that you said that that was a relatively new phenomenon, and what drew me to women was I thought this is a group of women who have been through what I've been through, and and they have sensitivity to that. And, and you know, your converse, your comments about this German doctor and I don't care um, is kind of getting to the heart of, I think, what the the risk is of men not having their eye totally on the ball of, of what women are going through mentally, not just physically, but mentally and um, emotionally and, and um, brain scan-wise and all of these different issues that they're just not maybe as attuned to as they should be. You know, when I was... Um we had our first son the month I started my fourth year of medical school. That was not That's the best insanity. idea. <laughs> yeah. He's turned out amazing, but that was not the best idea. Um, but it did something profound because I was a mother by the time I was doing my residency and practicing. It does give you a point of view that having experienced your own pregnancy, your own childbirth, I don't really believe you can explain childbirth to people unless they've been through it. And I've had the privilege of being on both sides of that delivery table and love delivering babies. But I can tell you it's a lot easier on that end than the side actually (laughs) getting that baby out. And I also tell my patients now, aren't you happy you have a menopausal doctor who did not really have the easiest menopause transition? I remember saying to my husband somewhere around 50, maybe 51, saying, look, I actually would not blame you if you had thoughts of a younger, better model, you know, to be married to. I would kill you, of course, but I wouldn't blame you because there are days I don't even like me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm anxious, weepy, normal, and it seems so unpredictable to me. And that, in part, was um, I didn't recognize at the time that I would have such a paradigm shift in the focus of my practice. And I, I still operate, and I love to operate. But I realized my smart friends knew really very little more about menopause than I knew. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I practically knew very little. Mm-hmm. I understood what I had learned and what the published literature said, but I thought, Either we have gaps in what we understand, or I'm having a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And there are days I was really concerned that why am I afraid to drive on the freeway all of a sudden? Why am I sobbing over an Oreo commercial? Why does that load of laundry seem like I'm climbing Mount Everest? And, And then other days, everything seems so easy. But probably the worst that made me feel so out of control is that eating the same or better, exercising the same or more, it's like, what is happening to my body? Mm. Where did this shift of weight to my abdomen come from? Mm. Why do I seem to be having breasts enlarging at 50? Like, where were they at 25 when they would have been useful or even 20? <laughs> Now what is happening to me? And it it took a decade of real research and thinking about it to try and piece these puzzle pieces together in a in at least a paradigm that made sense to me. 
that I could clinically use as a construct of patient care. I might be asking this question after you've already answered it, but maybe I'll just put our arms around it, of what women, what they can expect to live with and what they shouldn't expect to live with and what symptoms they're having that they should come see somebody, you or somebody like you, to say, I, you know, you don't have to live like this. Um, you mentioned hot flashes earlier that is kind of alarming to me now that that's a symptom of perhaps later Alzheimer's. But are there things that, um, you know, we just don't have to put up with? By the way, there's also, um, there are differences among the races with regard to hot flashes. And again, you know, we're living in a time where it's so risky to say anything like that about gender differences or racial differences. And I understand where that comes from. I've you know, I live through civil rights. I live through women's rights. Mm-hmm. But but there are truths that the science shows. So, for example, African-American women are likely to suffer more intensely and longer with hot flashes. Um, yeah. Hispanic whites more than non-Hispanic whites. And this is my favorite, Asians least of all. Why mm-hmm. is it my favorite? Because this is this is so emblematic of women's care. 20 years ago, studies showing Asian women don't get hot flashes. Asian women eat soy. Therefore, eat soy and you won't get hot flashes. I do remember that. Right. It was this declarative revelation. And I remember at the time saying to my nurse practitioner, I don't buy it. I think there are genetic differences that are predispositions to hot flashes, just like many other things. And that now has been shown to be true. And we used to tell women, oh, your hot flashes will go away in a few years. Well, there are many women who continue to have hot flashes the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And there are, for many women, they continue a decade or more after their last period. Now, do I think all women need hormones? No, I don't think all women need anything. I think all women need to lay the foundation of health and wellness by being thoughtful about nutrient combination mm-hmm. and timing of nutrient delivery. Because even though we've been able to disrupt circadian balance in this modern era, our cells, our biology, is hardwired. They are hardwired to function on a circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. So every cell system, and I'm not sure about red blood cells because they don't have a nucleus, but every cell system in the human brain and body has a day job and a night job. And the body as a whole functions better when the day job can do its job and the night job can do its job. One thing the brain wants in the morning, this is what I mean about circadian timing, the brain has a lot to do to get the entire brain body to shift from the night job to the day job. It's a huge shift in energy allocation. Just getting up is a huge energy allocation. So the brain is looking for good nutrition in the morning. It wants those fatty acids. It wants some protein with the amino acid precursors for the um, neurotransmitters. But it also needs the right complex carbs. The brain is not looking for a big meal. It does not want to divert energy to digestion early in the morning. Hmm. It prefers that at lunch. But then accordingly, dinner, although we've you know inverted this in the modern era, the intestines would like to not work so hard at night. Blood flow is supposed to leave the intestines at night and go to the skin. And that's why big late dinners can be hard to digest. You're asking 
the night shift to do the day shift's job. So part of the foundation of health is eating properly at the right time in the right amount. I believe exercise, of course, like everyone believes this, is critically important. When you look at women and acute declines in health, often is precipitated by a fall. Mm -hmm. So exercise, in addition to promoting endurance and strength, exercise also has to promote flexibility and balance. And so walking is great, but if you don't really focus on your core and focus on balance exercises, these things get compromised over time. And most of the women in my practice who um, have traumatic falls it's not doing anything interesting. The mm-hmm. woman last week who came in with shoulder fracture, she was unloading the dishwasher. She has no idea how she fell unloading the dishwasher and hit her shoulder on the corner of the dishwasher. And, you know, I said, you need to make up a better story than that. But her <laughs> her story is not uncommon. And then, of course, um, probably one of the greatest things everyone could do is find some form of meditation that is acceptable to them, whether it's something as simple as deep diaphragmatic breathing or um, visualization, but all the meditation literature shows the same thing, whether you do the Catholic rosary or you do recitation of the Lord's Prayer or you do Hindu mantra or even meditation outside of any religious context all forms have been shown to activate certain pathways in the brain that are the opposite of the stress pathway. And as opposed to making you very self-aware, you become aware of the community around you and open to the environment around you. And the output categorically is a spirit of generosity, Mm. calm, tolerance, patience, And there are marvelous studies on meditation showing both brain scan neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and provocative testing improvement, whether it's memory recall or, you know, regressive number, you know, subtract by seven starting at one million and 72. And people (laughs) do better in as short a period of time as 12 weeks. So I almost cannot practice anymore especially in anyone getting older or with chronic pain or recurrent any problems without recommending nutrition meditation as part of their therapy. Mm -hmm. And then I layer estrogen on top of that if I think they need it. I know I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. No, this is is fascinating. This is so good. To step back a little bit to something you were saying about your patient who broke her her shoulder, I mean, that is a huge concern amongst women, postmenopausal women, um, or slip and falls. And I'm wondering about estrogen, the relationship between estrogen and bone density. Um, does well, it that, help it? Or? Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's a, I thought, yes, that's a given. The data is clear on this, that estrogen um, controls or modulates the absorption of bone. Okay. And so it's very important for preventing osteoporosis or treating it even. What I thought you were going to say is, does a brain with enough estrogen have better balance? Mm. And there is good question. Yeah, (laughs) there is an evolving. Thank you. There is an evolving body of literature that says that's true. And even when women are blindfolded and you do two-point touch discrimination, Mm -hmm. women on estrogen have finer touch perception in the skin than women not taking estrogen. 
And again, I don't want your re- your listeners out there thinking, oh my gosh, thinks everyone should be on estrogen. That's an overstatement. But I think most women, especially in the 50s, should strongly consider estrogen. Because what we know now is that when you get to 10 years or more beyond your period of estrogen deprivation beginning, whether that's natural menopause or surgical menopause or medically induced menopause, once you get outside of 10 years, you probably will not benefit from estrogen and it may actually do harm. And mm-hmm. so the, the debate is why do harm? And that question I think is still evolving in its definitive answer, but there does seem to be a window of opportunity to maintain vitality mm-hmm. in the way that estrogen foundationally does. And if you lose it, starting estrogen is probably not the right idea. Mm. But that isn't that doesn't mean there's no hope because these foundational um, methods of maintaining vitality, again, nutrition, exercise, gratitude, meditation, friendship. Friendship in women mm. has been, by their own definition, friendship in women has been shown to be a better predictor of good cardiac health than smoking and high cholesterol are predictors of bad cardiac health. That's really? how yeah, really. Wow. That's how much this concept of social connectedness and the wiring and perception of the human brain um, it's so essential. That's why loneliness mm-hmm. kills. Humans were not designed or evolved to live in isolation. Our brains don't perceive the world that way. Fascinating. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie McClellan. We are talking women's health, um, KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. Um, We're drawing down on our time, so I'm just going to have to have you back on because I have a thousand questions, and and this is so informative. Um, But I'm wondering, as we kind of wrap up, over the last five to ten years, what do you think the the most interesting things are that are going on in women's health, surprises that have come out? I know medicine is always evolving. Um, Maybe we've touched on a lot of them, but... What I'm thrilled about is that I see women demanding Mm -hmm. high-level data. They don't want to be patronized. They want resolution of conflict, meaning my Dr. A tells me this, my Dr. B tells me this. I do my own research on the Internet. They want an integrated point of view, and I think where medicine's going and I'm very excited about this, is a legitimate demand, and therefore there will be an authentic response to have a union of allopathic traditional Western medicine with a much more integrated holistic point of view. Very much like what we did at doctor's office for women, but that was purely allopathic. Mm -hmm. But to have a place where a woman can go and have the nutritionist there, the exercise expert, the meditation coach, the lab, the imaging, the doctors of different specialties, both the integrated naturopathic doctors and the allopathic doctors coming together in a thoughtful way, looking at them as an integrated whole and not a headache attached to a patient, indigestion attached to a patient, recurrent bladder Infections. People are sick of it, mm-hmm. and it's not effective. You know, I've I've thought that the Mayo Clinic is the model that we should all follow. Where and 
you know, arguably, if you don't think it's the best destination complex medical clinic in the world, I don't think anyone would argue that it isn't one of the best. And I believe that the Mayo is great. To quote the doctor who is the head of the Cleveland Clinic, about 10 years ago, he was asked why their outcomes are so good. And he said respectfully, I think it's easier to teach a doctor the business of medicine than it is to teach a business person the medicine of medicine. And I think as patients demand, the talented care providers will come together and they'll come up with a model that is more effective, less expensive, fewer complications. And I think as a country, we could start to legitimately move towards wellness in a way that we haven't before. We're just really good at disease intervention and disease maintenance, but we can't afford it. People don't want it. They don't want to be maintained in a long state of chronic illness. They want to be well, and this is what I'm most excited about. I love that. Um, Do you see problems that are unique uh, maybe to Southern California women, Orange County women? Do we have a higher incidence of something than is standard than, you know, other parts of the country? I just feel like I hear, like, so much breast cancer. I know so many women who have battled breast cancer. I know it does seem like it's pandemic. I, um, that's a hard question. I, I think that getting older for women is a tricky dance. Mm-hmm. I think it's changing. I hope it's changing. I, I have a girl crush on a woman named Iris Apfel. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's mm-hmm. from New York. She um, was an interior designer. She started an amazing fabric house called Scalamandre. Mm-hmm. And she um, now is a fashion icon. I think if you Google her, you'd recognize her. She has short white hair. She wears these enormous black glasses. She's a fashion icon. She's 96 years old. She's still photographed everywhere. She's on the side of buses in New I York. I know who you mean, yeah. You know who I mean. Yeah. And I've seen a documentary on her. I think I've watched it four times because I love her. I love her role model. And she gets asked at one point, why haven't you had a facelift? And she laughs and says, let's be truthful. Even if I do, the hands would betray me. So I do the best I can with what I have. And I love her for that. And again, I'm not critical of people who do anything aesthetic. I used to, when I was young, say, oh, never would I do it. Now it's more an issue of what am I going to do and when. But I do think in Orange County, that's what I see as a burden. Mm -hmm. This um, battle with not only how to look your best, but an anxiety about getting older. And now there is this crazy, whole evolving field field in female aesthetics about private area aesthetics and how do you look and is it good and it's like oh my gosh one more thing to worry about right but that right. i think is somewhat unique to the coasts i think yeah. california new york i doubt that it's as prevalent a mindset so i think aging with confidence is probably what i think we struggle with here and not um, competing in a visual way with young women because first of all that's a losing game but secondly I think there's something fundamentally belittling about the journey that women walk and the wisdom and the contribution if you are willing to reduce your values simply to how you look. 
I have two cents on this. My my theory about this in Southern California in particular is because we don't experience the change of seasons. We because we don't go through winter and we don't go through fall. Uh, we don't experience the passage of time internally. That's and fascinating. We can't remember what last Christmas looked like because it just looked kind of like last February or yeah. two Marches ago. And so because we don't internally experience the passage of time, it's harder for that's us to accept that we're aging. That's I think my you, No, I think that's <laughs> smart. And we have too much money here. I don't know. but I never thought about that. That That is very thoughtful. It just seems like a Southern California phenomenon, yeah. even more than New York, you know, where they also have a lot of money. But they, they seem more accepting. I know it happens there, too, but they seem more accepting of their aging and, and you know, we just got, We went to Paris for my birthday, which was very fun. And... I was looking around at the Parisian women, and they're still beautiful, but they are not dressed like 20-year-olds, most of them. Some, some, but I wonder if they were tourists, the ones who were. I love that elegance, Mm -hmm. and I I admire that. And I met a plastic surgeon from Paris a few years ago, and he was saying that the women there are very specific about what they want from him. They want to look refresh, not young. Mm-hmm. It's a different goal. It's a different goal. Dr. Stephanie McClellan, you have to come back on. Oh, thank this you. This was unbelievable. I learned so much. Oh, and so I'm going to have you back on and learn some more. <laughs> thank you. That is all the time we have for today. I will be right back here with you next Thursday. Someone will. I mean, it's actually not me next week, but it'll be me the week after. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this evening and uh, have a great, great night.